Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers, aimed to give you the story behind the story. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes that led to the writing of these books. If you're a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. Give Us More Guns, How South Africa's Gangs Were Armed, by Mike Shaw. It was one of the most brutal criminal acts of the post-apartheid era and its consequences devastating. Thousands of people, including women and children, died between 2011 and 2019 as a result of one senior police officer's crime. His decision to sell millions of rands worth of guns to fund his children's university fees. Colonel Christian Prinsloer, the former head of the Gauteng Firearm License Division, and a network of his cronies sold thousands of guns that had been decommissioned by SAPs to South Africa's gang lords. The sale of those lethal weapons, which the police service tried to cover up, led to a killing spree of unprecedented proportions. Cape Town, which became the destination for most of these guns, is now one of the most violent places on earth. Based on hundreds of interviews with police and the criminal underworld, Give Us More Guns tells the story of this callous crime for the first time. In this book, Mark Shaw explores how the illegally sold guns got into the hands of South Africa's crime bosses. In this episode, Mark Shaw will be in conversation with Mandy Weiner, one of South Africa's best known and most credible journalists and authors. So we were joking before uh, the start of this event that Mark is wearing a white shirt and every time I've seen him, he wears white shirts and um, uh, Jennifer said that it's it's because the saying goes that in court you should always wear a white shirt so it adds to, you know, that element of of the the dignified i said facade but i need to take that back right <laughs> well Murfield, maybe not <laughs> okay so we're going to start off um and i think that this book is really about one particular crime and as you you describe on the cover of the book in the blurb um it really is you know perhaps one of the most brutal criminal acts of the post-apartheid era its uh, consequences are devastating and at the center of it all is this police colonel, uh, Christian Prinster, who decided to sell millions of rands worth of guns that belonged to the police to fund his children's university fees. And you estimate that around 9,000 guns were sold onto the streets, around 1,000 murders uh, were actually carried out with these guns. But before we delve into the actual crime, I want to start by zooming out and placing it all in context. And a lot has been written and spoken about uh, the Cape Ganglands, the history, the politics, but let's place this crime in, in context. So set the scene for us before the guns flooded the Cape Flats. What was happening? Amanda, as you know, the, the Cape Flats have, um, for a variety of historical reasons, going back to forced removals and, and the like, um, have, have had a set of gangs or gang uh, 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 nascent gangs and they've evolved over the years um f firstly with the influx of of uh, mandrax in the 80s and the 90s and then other forms of drugs south africa joining uh, the the global illicit economy uh, more or becoming more integrated into the expanding global illicit economy um and the numbers of people recruited into gangs has has grown over this period and the book contains as you know an, an overview of of membership um of of gangs and i think it's really important to understand that gangs and in, individuals who may belong or be associated are kind of a, a spectrum of of people so sort of youth gangs and then hardcore gangsters and then really what you might call crime bosses if you like so before this period um, in in the beginning in the 1990s, there were a range of pug attacks. Uh, uh, um, the gangs were to some degree at, at one point on on the back foot. A resurgence, higher levels of violence. Gangs had access to guns. There's no question historically, and and certainly after 1994, um, but not in enormous numbers. And and gang members 
have said consistently that you know the gang boss would hold a a cache of guns which he would uh, loan out to to individual um uh, gang members but then a flood of guns arrived from around 2007 uh, um and that everybody says began to transform the the nature of gangsterism given the the sort of the the economy of gangs the the need for territory um uh, and, and arrange so a sort of perfect storm, if you liked, of which guns was a was a absolutely key component. And these were not only, but a but a a, a, a significant number were state guns. Mm. So you spend some time in the book uh, just laying out the kind of landscape, the patchwork that is being protected by the different gangs. And you know we we hear the names, but but here you kind of dissect it and lay it all out. And you tell us about the Americans and the hard livings, but then you tell us about the junky, funky kids and the nice time kids and the fancy boys and the Dixie boys and the junior mafias and you know all all of the the terrible justice and the all, all the names come out. How important is it for us to to understand the kind of workings of that gangland world so that we we understand who gets the guns and where the guns are, are fed through to? I think what the book, I mean, you're right, I wanted to lay out what the flows of the gangs were, because actually I was trying to trace where the first uh, um, gangs arrived, you know, who made the first purchase, who made the first contact, and the book outlines some of that. And then I wanted to trace the stream of the guns, and it was actually quite hard to do for, for a variety of reasons. A couple of points, which I think your question is getting to, is there are a number of, well, at the risk of simplifying it, but two larger constellations of gangs, the 26s and the 28s, um, a particularly big gang, the Americans, which is very uh, devolved in its in its organization. Um, and uh, as elsewhere, where, as you know, I'm working internationally, and as elsewhere, I think this is, in fact, part of the consolidation of, of the, the gangs over time. However, the, uh, and most of the gang wars, as I've outlined, it take place between the Americans and other uh, um, gangs, and there's several examples uh, um, of that. But the, the the I think it's important to understand, in for in 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 my view, because the it when when. The, the the information was that the 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 first gangs the first guns were going onto the side of the 28s and it was in, extremely important for the Americans the constellation on the other side to access guns to bring a degree of balance into the into the, the sort of gangland um, and I, I guess a couple of interesting points firstly gangs were some gangs are unaligned to both sides so they they were they were bridges through which guns flowed um, the the some gangs didn't have cash available to buy guns, which was of great, which was actually of a lot of interest. I would have thought, well, gangs would automatically have cash available, but they returned with cash. So there was this process of bargaining around accessing different consignments of of guns um, with different gangs. You know, the 28s wanting the Z88, which is a, a gun that sort of features prominently in the book because it's a a sort of decommissioned police gun. So the story is is the intertwining of of all of these uh, um, elements. And and Prince himself didn't want to get close to the gangs, understandably so. So he 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 had an intermediary who's still to stand trial, uh, um, who who was doing the negotiations. And the 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 gangs bought the guns in bulk, and in my view, quite cheaply. Uh, um, and you can understand why that's the case in the sense the negotiations were un uneven. And once gang bosses knew there were guns available and they knew the source, uh, they they didn't hesitate to approach it and approach it in, in a threatening way. So these initial transactions which began to, you know, where, where the, the seller had, had uh, a degree of, if you like, bargaining power, I think quickly evened out over time. Um, and, and guns were then flowing 2007, uh, you know, to 2013, 14. So that's a number of years. So gangs operate in a similar way all over the world. They evolve out of a particular political economy. And that usually involves breaking up of, of communities, as you say. And you write this line in the book 
a gang needs turf to sell drugs and needs guns to control its turf. It's as simple as that. And that's why they needed the guns. Yes, and and uh, um, and and that's what gang bosses and others uh, say quite uh, directly. That you know the economy is you basically you 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 need to own territory um, and you you own it in a number of ways. Of course, you know this is very characteristic elsewhere. The, the painting of symbols, the, the you know which street you own, which particular neighbourhood. Um, and if the opposition gets guns or if you get guns, you get additional power and you can expand that territory. And that territory relates to uh, where you can sell, where you can practice extortion. Extortion is important. Extortion in a variety of forms is an important part of, of, uh, of that arrangement. So the sort of triangle drugs territory recruitment. So recruitment of people is part of this and, and then uh, and guns. And then you also need a, a spider in the web, such as the lawyer, Nuruddin Hassan. And you need rampant corruption within the police and in the gun licensing system. And all of these are the ingredients for this perfect storm, which we saw happening. Yes, and I really do think it was a, a, a kind of perfect storm. This this um, this integration of, of South Africa into the global drug economy in a much bigger way than it had been before. You know, information that... South African crime bosses were reaching out to other, con you know, contacts overseas. The growth of the heroin economy um, in uh, in Cape Town and elsewhere, and in while we talk about the Cape Flats gangs, that the, you know the core gang bosses having a national reach, uh, being regular visitors to Johannesburg, to to Durban, you know, the connections between Durban and Cape Town uh, uh, are very important. And the 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 point about the guns, I think they were. Also, an, they were a, a useful recruitment tool because young guns are power and status and, and, and young men wanted to join because those were available. And the seizures of guns increased because young gangsters threw away their guns, the, the, the police report. Uh, um, there were just a lot uh, um, uh, available. So it's... It, 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 and, and I think... You know, I, I was outside the country and then coming to UCT a, a couple of years, you know, just as the in, in just in the year or two before the case was was breaking. And, uh, you know, the violence was surging up and the, these endless sense, series of gang wars, which culminate in the military being deployed in 2019. So that's a very significant event. You know, the police can no longer control what is essentially free for all mm -hmm. shooting matches in some cases. So I. I, I you know, one of my responses, and it's clear in the book, I hope, is people always say, well, this is and like quite stereotypical. You know, this is characteristic of the Cape Flats. Actually, this is this is much more complicated than that. This, of course, is a historical evolution, but uh, a particular form of organized crime has been driven by both the internal and external factors. Um, and, and the guns have been uh, a key, a key part of that. Because, as you say, the, the gangs had always had access to guns that were stolen during burglaries or other ad hoc crimes, but they they were hard to come by and they were considered to be very precious. But suddenly the Cape Flats was awash with firearms and all these guns, as you say, came from three major sources. The Z88 or the Zulus uh, used by the cops. There were the guns handed in by unsuspecting citizens and then guns from the SAP's armory. So what happened? What was the process? I mean, I don't want to give away too much of, of what's in the book, but all of a sudden, the Cape Flats is awash with guns. I mean, the first point to make is, and, and the, the, the book shows some evidence of that with the police's own statistics, is that there was already a market for police guns before 2007, 2008. So if you look at the statistics, around 10,000, so these are not the Prince Lua guns, as the book makes clear, around 10,000 Police guns go missing or lost. Now, I'm not saying all of those ended up in uh, with uh, in, into the underworld, but in a variety of ways, uh, guns are seeping out of the police, and it's some stations are much worse than others. So some stations have no loss, others have actually substantial loss. So the sense actually that there's a gun economy developing, and what what gang folks said is. Well, of course, they, they knew they could buy guns from the police. The police were a legitimate source because, you know, you go to where the source of guns is. Um, and, and so this economy 
was developing and i suspect prince Lua knew that they i was told you know that he tested the market with some z80 these three sources that you outlined many the sort of decommissioned around the z88 made in the late 1980s it's issued out it's a copy of the beretta um so in the in the early 2000s there's a, a you know a, a large number of them are taken back so they are centralized in in the in another part of the perfect storm they are centralized in the police armory source number one source number two uh, it, what citizens have handed in in the amnesties from 94 etc and source number three guns from the the uh, saps 13 store so guns that are seized uh, guns that have been used in evidence and they are centralized for destruction in Ferenichen, which is the old steel uh, uh, center or steel manufacturing center and, and they are melted down Prince Lua and and uh, and, a, and a colleague, a, also a colonel called David Naidu, extracts some of these guns, and there are two there are two lines to this. Extract some of these and sell them in bulk, but there's also an active collectors market for for you know guns from the Boer War, guns that have been used in you know in what was then the Rhodesian Bush War, or whatever else, and these are collectors items. And if they're handed in, Prince Lua is an expert. And uh, and with uh, another a gun collector uh, who he knows in Freenichen, he is extracting those guns as well. So there are two lines to this to to uh, uh, to to the crime. And while guns are being destroyed, you know the minister may come and it's a you know a, a celebration and the guns are crushed and whatever. Other guns are extracted and transported primarily to Cape Town, although there's some evidence, as the book explains, that it also goes to Durban. Um, and and that's essentially the, the the cynical crime. And at the same time, you can find in the press Prince Lua quoted asking people to hand in their guns in amnesties and giving information. You know, so this weird uh, um, and that in in a sense this this dichotomy, if you like, between you know we we need to hand in guns in amnesties. How many we've handed in? Police citizens hand in your guns at the same time that guns were being sold out, out the back door. And that's, to me, yeah. makes it just this almost unbelievable crime. Here's the police meant to seize the guns. You know, the, and, and that's why in, in the book, as you know, I say these are our guns. In a sense, they belong to us as citizens. You know, uh, uh, the Z88s were paid by citizens, taxpayers. This is a system that, you know, pulled the guns in, and yet they leaked out in, in, uh, in bulk. And the system to do that failed, you know. Yes, Prince Lua Naidu are bad apples, so to speak, but the sort of the overall systems of control and, and security just didn't work. And it wasn't a one sort of crime and it took place over a number of years and many consignments. And this is the, the mad irony for me and why I find this so astonishing, because I mean, I vividly recall um, as a reporter in the newsroom at the time, uh, a number of my colleagues going to these big events where these guns were destroyed and melted down and exploded and all of that. And as you say, the very people that were asking people to, to hand in their guns were the ones selling them off to, to the ganglands. And yeah. you tell some, some pretty riveting stories in the book about these various middlemen and how they got these like, stash, these caches of guns down to Cape Town. Um, you know, I think his name is Petros, you called him. This guy who like takes a tog bag full of yeah. guns and puts it in, hides it in full sight on, on a bus that he takes. I mean, this is the sheer brazenness of some of these stories I found yeah. unbelievable. It is unbelievable. And and what's, it's kind of like, a, you know, and, and I'm using a phrase which a, a gang interview used, it was sort of like flies to a honeypot. I mean, that's the, hence the title, give us more guns. Once it was clear that there was a line, this word, there's a line of guns coming from the police. The police are giving us guns, people said. You know, and then on you know, amongst that, and you can understand why communities on the Cape Flats, at least, at, you know, uh, uh, um, the sense that there was a conspiracy that, you know, the, the, the police are supplying and, 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 and feeding um gang violence and prince Lou had a story I, I i don't want to say the source of it but that he was you know he that he had actually sold the guns for piracy protection of somalia and and you know i personally having worked there for the un on these issues i this i thought well let me you know uh, um see if there's any grounds to this and i think it's absolutely groundless story um but the reason of course that he was saying that in in the sense that guns could be used 
to protect ships passing through the piracy zone and then thrown overboard and would effectively disappear. You know, he he said in in court papers, you know, when he essentially uh, turned state witness that it's 2,400 guns. I have to say, I don't believe that, as the book says. And, you know, a constellation of of interviews around him and what gangsters themselves say, um, I, I think the, the number is is um, is considerably higher. So tell us about this uh, Colonel Prinsler, this frustrated cop who was looked over for promotion. What made him go from the most highly regarded expert on guns in the steps to somebody who was essentially arming the gangs? You look at his pathology in the book, but, you know, break that down for us. I mean, I, I, it's hard to know why anyone would commit a, a crime like this, in, in, in my view. And I thought a lot about it. You know, you know was he a racist? Uh, um, uh, was he, you know, did, was there political motive for this? And, and I think the answer is none of that. He, it's this almost classic case. He was frustrated. He comes, firstly, he had a very high opinion of himself. Um, he was always, and, and, and this phrase is used by multiple people in describing him. He was the cleverest person in the room. And, and you know, when you were talking about guns, and guns are really an expert community, so there's lots of detail and stuff to know, and he knew it. You know, he could identify different types, et cetera, et cetera. So he was the cleverest person in the room. He had a very high regard for his expertise, as did others. Uh, um, and he had an arrogance about him in, 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 in that expertise. Secondly, he, he in, in a way, thought he was cleverer than others. And, and in fact, this, this crime, he, he thought it was... In, in a sense that he got away with it for so long, sort of comes through the, um, and he needed money. Um, I think he he made less money than it appears. That's that's my my point because I I I feel they were underselling the the number of guns and there's some calculations around the money in the book, but at the same time there's this weird contradiction that he's a loyal police officer. So when the police arrest him. He almost knew he was going to be arrested. He turns and immediately starts to help them even before a lawyer arrives. You know, well, of course, these are, you know, I need to help my, my, my fellow police officers. So it's this, it's this strange contradiction that he had been passed over for promotion. And, and there, there appears to be a racial element in that, uh, uh, you know, he was a colonel and, and uh, somebody was appointed to a brigadier post who, who was uh, black. And, and by, by all accounts, that, that led to a, a, a sense of frustration. So you can you can sense all of these uh, these things a little bit like you know like well these guns are going to be destroyed anyway. Firstly, secondly, well it's just going to criminals. You know, and I don't think he put a value on. I don't know if he made a if he did it was very cynical. And thirdly, well the system owes me, and so I'll 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 extract from the the system in any event. Now this. This package is not uncommon, I think, in, in relation to, you know, corrupt practices. Well, I've been passed over for promotion. Well, this is just my due. Actually, I'm, I'm quite smart anyway. So, you know, it's this and that's the, the book tries to sketch out um, that, uh, that constellation of, of, uh, of psychological activities, if you like, yeah. Mandy. So Prince Lo gets sentenced to 20 years in jail in 2016, and then he unexpectedly, yeah, 2018, unexpectedly gets released on parole yeah. in 2020 um, because he is now, it seems, going to be a, a state witness. It just sounds crazy. I mean, that's that's insane that he only served a couple of years for for this crime. Yes, I, I mean, there hasn't been much of an outcry. There was, Avusi uh, Piccoli, for example, tweeted, and there was some outrage around it. I mean, the truth is that he is in witness protection because his life is under serious threat, um, uh, because he has to give evidence against others in, in this case. And he owes it to us, is, uh, is at least how I, I would like to say it. So, yes, it's a very short sentence it brings up of course the old debate which you, you yourself know from previous books about you know when you you know turning state witness etc um and once the, the chain begins to to uh you, you know unfold david naidu is even more interesting case uh, uh, he, he doesn't appear to serve any 
a prison sentence. He he seems to have been part of the discussion. He will also um, provide evidence in in the in the cases that are that are that are coming. So uh, the alleged intermediary uh, uh, Lahia is is the the key target at least of of the state and and uh, the individual uh, Alan Raves who's allegedly involved on the on the a heritage firearm side, the sort of more that I referred to earlier, they're standing trial together. Whether or not the the key gangsters are are next in line, I I I, I, I the book makes a point more that the target of some of those key folk is around the the firearms um, licensing and corruption process. So, you know, I, I guess one last point to, to make, Mandy, is that. For me, this is this huge crime, and it's been quite difficult to follow. Uh, um, certainly, if you're an ordinary citizen, there's a couple of news stories, etc., um, taking place over time. So the, the purpose was really to try and piece all of that together, link it to the country's homicide rate, the, the sort of failing system of gun control, the, the, the damaged systems within the police to tell this bigger story um, through what at least I regard to, to be the most deadly crime of post-apartheid South Africa. I, I do wonder often why um, some stories create, you know, a furor and others don't, uh, where people will, will get worked up, the public will get worked up about certain things, and yet here you've got one of the most heinous crimes of the post-apartheid era, and, and yet there doesn't seem to be any outrage about it. And I also, unfortunately, you know, many people have got this theory that the, the Cape gangs are not sexy enough as a story, as a news story. And that's why they don't get covered as much in the news or people don't necessarily read as many books about them. Uh, do you agree with that or do you think that's a very cynical view? I disagree entirely. I mean, a, a couple of points. I think I don't think it has it has taken the public imagination because it occurred over a long time and Prince was like an indirect, you know, he wasn't shooting anybody directly. Uh, he was supplying the mm -hmm. tools to others. Um, I think that's a very cynical view, frankly. There's no doubt that these guns had just a massive impact. The the I think the the, the gang issue on Cape Town. Firstly, we should call it for what it is. In many cases, it's, it's a hardcore organised crime, and 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 it has developed like that at least at its top level. And and we need a, a a way to to respond to it much more effectively. And in the the you know people. I, I, because they live often exclu in excluded communities on the Cape Flats and elsewhere, people live in extraordinarily uh, uh, violent communities where there are shootouts regularly, where where you know parents fear for taking their children, um, you know, out of the house, etc. Where where schools are, where, where gangs are active in schools, etc. And in the crossfire of the guns delivered into this morass of violence, are a lot of children. Uh, um, very young children, and and the reports, you know, in in a way, we are it's almost so in, immunized to these reports. You know, four year old, I, I I saw one the other day. You know, lost their eye. There was I, I saw data from the Red Cross Children's Hospital. The quite dramatic increase in gunshot wounds and and uh, um, of children. This is a feature of putting into a very contested, violent space firearms and and those firearms are 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 used and and in a sense we're reaping the, the whirlwind and you can simply tell that by cape town's homicide rates and i make this point in the book you know anything above 30 per hundred thousand is high but there are parts of cape town you know 70 hundred uh, uh cases per per hundred thousand so sort of warlike conditions and that's the real effect of, of Prince's crime here is that that it has ended in bloodshed in in so many murders um i do want to take you to the the actual process of deciding to write this book and, and researching it and and why you chose this particular story although that, that's quite clear you, you're a researcher not a journalist but your books read as if they're written by a journalist um do you find people more inclined to speak to you because you are a, a researcher and are there times where you feel like you are kind of straying into that that realm of being a journalist. Yeah, I, I, I think the, look, I think the, let's call it the information economy for whatever, for want of a better word, is changing. 
and and I think these kinds of activities occur a, a along a, a spectrum. You know, journalism is so crucial, and I and and crime reporters, you know, like a, a absolutely crucial component to to being able to write a book like this because you're picking up individual stories of 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 lots of individual reports of both incidents or seizures or contacts with the police etc um and that's crucial the role of research uh, um at the global initiative but just generally the role of research is to paint a bigger picture and point towards policy solutions and the role of research is to tell I, 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 it's not a, a, a is to contextualize individual in, uh, incidents in in a bigger contextual space. But you want people to read uh, um, your research, and and you know I have had some uh, interesting discussions with Jeremy Berain and Jonathan Ball because if you wrote a dry, <laughs> if you wrote a dry uh, um, overview of guns, you know it it may be excellent, but no one would read it. And so I feel that this is a better book than Hitman. Hitman for me was very important, similar a kind of book to say, well, hits are suddenly all over the place in South Africa. What's the economy of these hits? Can we tell the stories of the individuals involved? This is a similar book, but but I I, I feel that I'm learning how to do it better to translate the the multiple interviews into a series of narratives about people. And people want to read about people and policies about people and the harm caused by guns is about people. And so this is a very people-centric book. And so it should be in, in, in my view. And I spent quite a lot of time, you know, redrafting it and, and cutting a lot of the policy stuff out because the point was to tell a story and through telling that story, highlights a key issue, which is that the state leaks, leaks guns and and vast quantities of guns and we are paying the price as a country for that. So you do all of these interviews and uh, you speak to all these people, you recount your meetings with gangsters in safe houses and at the Rhodes Memorial uh, tea room, which uh, sadly we, we've no, now no. lost. Um, I was pretty terrified at times, you know, I think that you like seriously ballsy, you know, from some of these encounters that you have with, uh, with these gangsters. Um, you know, was that a concern for you? Uh, how easy was it for you to go into Manenberg and meet with a gangster and hear their story? You know, I, you needed all of that color and you bring the story to life, that academia to, to life that way. But what was your experience of doing that? I mean, from a research perspective, I have done this for a long time. And of course, if you are working in the field of criminology, not to speak to people who are involved or linked to crime just seems to me at least not a, a not an option. I think you are right that it is easier as a researcher to access interviews, partly because there's not a story to break next day, and partly because for a variety of reasons, journalists don't always go to underworld sources and they don't go lower down into gangs or underworld organizations, understandably. So a journalist wouldn't necessarily talk to a mid-level gangster, in my opinion. You can tell me whether that's there's there's a deadline. So you talk to the police, you might talk to the gang boss, um, you 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 might talk to to others who who are involved, but you're unlikely to talk to the guy I'm interested in who's put the bag of guns on the bus from Johannesburg to Cape Town. For me, he's a key part of the research story of piecing together what happened and and the color of, a, of 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 how that happened i'm also interested in in speaking to i think that applies to journalists to lower level police people who have different reflections or 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 experiences and 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 communities which journalists do speak to that's absolutely true none of this means i'm critical of journalism in in any way mainly but my point is to try and draw a distinction between a process of qualitative research which is a to do as many interviews as you can while putting people at ease to get them to talk and in some ways anonymity becomes important uh, uh, because you and and in a way there's also a trusting relationship between a research author presenting a package of data uh, um, which is contextualized with qualitative interviews in the context of a narration that that tells a, a a 
a story. And I mean, I'm very, of, of course, and surprisingly very interested in nonfiction and how to try and do it. And I, I'm only an amateur. I, I, I want to do it better and better. But the, the, I think that's the 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 process. And and there's a if you look at like a spate of American criminal justice style books written by academics, or you could call them quasi-academics, think tank types. Many people are attempting to do this: the story of of cases with a policy objective, but to tell an, an, a, a, a narrative. And I at least think that that's that's something worth trying to do. People read policy papers and the like, but that's a very small audience. So how can you reach a bigger audience um, and and have a sense of public outrage around, outrage is, is perhaps the wrong word, but a sense of public understanding about what's happened and that we can do something about it, I think is the is the the, the point of a of a book like this. As you say exactly that, that ultimately it is about policy change and you make some recommendations in the book around the circulation of illegal firearms, uh, the National Firearms Registry, um, and that we need a, a cleanup altogether. Yeah. So what are you hoping to achieve here? What would you like to see happen? I mean, the first point to make is that I have historically been very interested in the reduction of homicide rates and the reduction of homicide. And and uh, um, uh, and given South Africa's extraordinarily high levels of, of murder and the somewhat contested debates around it, including, you know, the endless release of the crime statistics and the interpretations that are provided around social violence, et cetera, some of which are true, some of which I think are are massaged for the for the benefit of 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 the state, etc. I think the, the the challenge with safety policy, in my view, is that we um, we we focus too we try and do too much. And you know, this was always my criticism of the national crime prevention strategy, in a sense, which is this great attempt, actually, which which uh, uh, um, which which worked you know in its early days because homicide uh, big, uh, reduced but the the challenge of policy is to focus on a small number of things and and i think guns is is provides that it provides a very very uh focused thing to to focus on and guns in the underworld are precisely that and if the state is a key source of weaponry then we have systems, and we know that we have systems in which we can stop that. And if we can stop that, we can reduce the homicide rate. And the the reality is, we were doing that because you know the new firearms legislation came into effect in two thousand four, two thousand five. There's there's you know this this small literature. Okay, it's a very small number of people looking at this. But one of the questions was, where have all the firearms gone? You know, I, I forget the exact date of the article, sort of uh, mid two thousands. And, and the homicide rate was on the slow decline until 2011, 2012. And yes, these are statistics you know, of interest to a, a small number of people debating it. But those statistics have enormous human costs, obviously, because people being, being um, killed and driving fear, etc. And if you look at the combination of the upswing of homicide and you combine it with mortuary data, particularly in, in Cape Town, you can see the impact of of firearms as as the the homicide rate starts to track up to over sixty uh, per per hundred thousand. So the point is to say we we need a serious look at all of these issues. That means an independent audit of gun destruction. And one of the key issues here is that the the in a sense the police have become much less accountable. And and that's the the point that the book tries to make. The police have never acknowledged really that they are the source of a significant quantity of of firearms how can that be the, the police are here to serve the community rather than uh, um uh, be the the very source of of weapons mm -hmm. uh, um so for me that's you know just in 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 the context of policing and democracy that's a fundamental point so independent order to build trust in in these processes secondly i think the firearms registry as the book spells out has serious challenges consistently serious challenges I asked through a freedom of information request for some documentation. I never got it. I had other documentation and you, you it's just 
consistently problems of corruption. And what I was interested in is gang bosses applying for and receiving large numbers of, of, of firearms. Um, and so the system is, is in a way broken. And that's a system that can be fixed. And I would argue to, to establish a separate process, uh, uh, um, potentially civilian run outside of the SAPS. So, you know, all of these systems are, are creaking or not functioning. And and we are we are we are paying the price. And the Prinsloo case stands at the centre of that. But the but the Prinsloo case is linked to the killing of Kinnear, is linked to the issuing of licences. These while we, these are reported separately, they are a continuum of of failure and and uh, um, and enormously harmful impact uh, for, for us as a country. So I do want to pick up on this issue of, of the police and corruption and where we are at the moment uh, with the, the infighting and factionalism in crime intelligence and, and in the Western Cape. I just want to remind everyone that uh, they, can't, they can ask questions. Uh, so you're welcome to post questions in, in the comments um, and we will pick those up and uh, we're monitoring those. So if you have questions for Mark, please post them uh, and we'll put them uh, through to Mark. So uh, as you were saying, you know, the, there is this... this issue currently that it, it is related to to Charles as well and what's happening there and and yet in the book although it very much is about corrupt cops there are also the good cops so there is the character for example of Ixian who's the first police officer to pick up the fact that the the guns are coming in and then you've got this very complex character of Jeremy Veary um, who features there, and then Peter Jacobs, who we know was the head of crime intelligence until just a, a couple of weeks ago. But you've got all of these characters who um, are, are also complex police officers. Yeah. And that also um, affects our view of whether the, whether the police are just corrupt. You know, some people are very cynical about this and say, well, the cops are just corrupt. But there are good police officers here as well. Yeah, without a doubt. I, I mean, I... As you know, it's very disconcerting to try understand the extraordinary, you know, this factionalized policing structure um, in in the Western Cape, in 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 particular. Um, and as you know, I, I've tried to describe it as best I can, and the linkages and the complexities of of it. But this has to, and and the characters, good and bad, and and kind of grey in 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 the middle. Um, uh, this just has to impact upon the, the nature of the policing that is able to be provided. And the story of Exty and this constable that finds it, who himself is quite an interesting character, as the book outlines. Um, but these guys don't go up the system. This, for me, is the most symbolic thing of all. They stumble on this emerging case of police weapons, essentially, with gangsters and information, they don't report it up the hierarchy because they feel it will be compromised. I mean, what greater symbolic act than than that? And they go outside of the system um, to to try and uh, uh, piece it together. They go secretly to to the national commissioner um, Pierre at the time. So this is you know quite uh, quite a, a long time ago. So in and of course, like many bureaucracies what's on paper doesn't necessarily you know the networks and the phone calls and the messages that that are made and i I've, I've tried to sort of give a give a, a sense of that but you know man you're also doing interviews in the western cape you you sort of a, a level of paranoia sets in after a while as you know because you don't know who to trust or how and 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 i tried to convey that also in the book and the rumors about individuals and and you know who's involved yeah. in what and and the, the sort of misinformation that is thrown into the system, which you, you sort of have to clear through and check, and that continues. Uh, um, and I think that says a lot about how damaged the overall system of policing is. Not only the, you know, the processes and the systems, firearms registry, but but the the you know the nature of the management. Lots of generals, but very poor systems of, of management, very poor control of around around firearms, um, you know, incredibly courageous cops, Kinnear, investigating away, but not knowing who to trust. The sort of integration between serious hardcore criminality and, and 
people in the police. So it, 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 it's, it's for me very complicated to understand. But the truth is, is that the, the system is dramatically weakened and not working. Um, and an indictment, despite the bravery of the police officers involved, is that it took a very long time to find out that police weapons were, you know, the police ran sources in all gangs. It it was, I don't want to say widely known, but a lot of people knew there were police weapons, you know, swirling around in relatively large numbers. So you have a sense, and I guess that's also the point of the book, you have a sense that, and I've said this before, that the response to crime is just, reactive we pick up bodies and we investigate cases not always very successfully but we don't have a proactive strategy to target key people and issues firearms from the state being one uh, uh, in in which we can turn this around and unless unless we can move from that reactive uh, uh not losing core elements of the reactive which are key to the preventative focused on a core number of things we we won't be able to make a difference, and that's the 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 message that um, I I want to to make from the book. And in a sense, the police have become more authoritarian, less accountable. You, you know, you could almost say, ironically, there was this golden age of policing '94, the sense of transition and new ideas. We've lost that, and and in a way, if we want to reduce crime, we have to return to some of those uh, kinds of approaches. The problem you've also got is that if you look at somebody like Charles Kinnear, who was closing in on these these guns for gangs investigations, and then he was assassinated. Yeah. And and much of the reporting seems to suggest that was as a result of this investigation, which sends a pretty strong message to the police as well to, to not scratch too close to that itch. I mean, as you know from, and having looked at a lot of hits myself for the previous book, and as you know, we continue to monitor individual cases. Hits are entirely, of course, they are about eliminating an individual, but they are very symbolic. They send messages, which is why hit lists are such a powerful tool uh, uh, to circulate, because you don't have to kill everybody on a hit list. You you simply, you, you need to... Um, you, you, you need to send the message that you have the power to do that. I hope that the Kinnear case, because it is a senior police officer, and there, there was another police colonel, Brewer, in working on wildlife trafficking, which has got much, much less coverage. Uh, yeah, um, I reported on that when it happened as well. Exactly. That was also a clear assassination of a police officer who was getting too close to, to the source. First, yeah, exactly. And and, and that sends, a, sends a, an, an important message. You know, if you remember the the degree to which um, a mafia prosecutor in in Italy, Falcone, was killed uh, um, along with a, a a partner of his, and that transformed the Italian response to to organized crime. You know, if you can hope that the kind of Kinnear killing transforms the response to organized crime in in the context of South Africa, it it really does mean prosecuting that case successfully following it up with the media, getting to the core set of, of people uh, uh, behind it. And you had a feeling of that in, in, you know, in the early days. There really was an outcry. Um, and you know, Kenya's wife has remained an enormously courageous figure uh, uh, speaking out and, and, and drawing attention to, to, the, to the issues involved. So in, in a way, I think we're at a, at a at a crucial point on a, on a number of cases, not only the Prince Lua case, but you know the, the case of Kinnear, the case of two high-profile uh, uh, gang underworld-style figures who who are um, charged around the firearms corruption. Um, so there's a set of cases coming together, which which I think will hopefully have a, a, an important impact. But the system. Is permeated by corruption, um, and all the more reason to shine a light on it, to report on it, um, uh, to monitor these cases more effectively. Uh, you know, hence the the huge critical role of, of crime reporters operating in in very diff difficult environments, but also of of the research community looking for sort of the key turning points, the key events in in a, a sort of unfolding. Uh, discussion around making South Africa safer. Mark, I have a question for you off uh, the Twitter. Um, yep. 
A question for Mark Shaw. We know plus minus how many rounds and weapons go missing per month from SAPS. What about from the SANDF? It's a very good question. There are not consolidated figures from the SANDF. There are lots of individual reports. The, the most recent, most prominent was in December 2019. I think it was 19 R5s. Um, which were picked up as missing in an audit in, in uh, Pretoria. So you get quite a lot of, you can get the data from parliamentary questions, et cetera. The, the biggest military loss of firearms is around 500, I think in 2017 in uh, an army base in the Eastern Cape. So uh, military bases have been targeted. The Simonstown Naval Base was targeted. Those firearms were retrieved. Um, uh, so there's no doubt that the the the, the military is, is a is a is a target, but in response to the the question, there isn't a consolidated set of figures as the police have been um, uh, uh, releasing. I don't have any doubt that there's a there's there has been leakage from from uh, from the military, and you can see this in in the in the sort of scattering of of uh, of, of reports. And you can see this also if you watch media coverage of cash and transit and other crimes. Mm. When the gun is named or look at the picture of the gun on the scene, R4s, R5s, LM4s, LM5s. So that's the, that's the uh, call it the civilian semi-automatic version, which is held by private security companies. I think private security companies probably leak too. I have heard lots of stories. Um, I have heard stories of firearms leaking from armories over our border, Zimbabwe, Namibia. So I wouldn't only only restrict it to to the South African military. But so the sense that firearms disappear from armories is, of course, common globally. Uh, you know, from Libya, whatever. But but we have enough control and capacity to to maintain control over the over the armories, and it should be absolute priority. Sorry, Manny, can I add just to the question? If you look at the numbers and the reports of firearms from metros, Kuleleni, uh, uh, we asked some uh, freedom of information requests. We didn't get answers. But you can see it, you know, I, from guns gangsters have shown, you know, they are metro guns. So they may have been stolen from officers, but it's also possible that they leaked. And when you see the figures, their guns are, have gone missing. Mm. Aristotles. So there are a variety of sources within the broader states where where guns can can uh, leak in, into the underworld. Well, Mark, I've loved chatting to you. I think this book is uh, an excellent piece of research and it's, it's so necessary to shine a light on this case that needs much more attention. I think you have shown remarkable courage and insight and you take us into the, the darkest corners of, of the ganglands. So um, highly recommended. Thank you. Thank you for hosting me. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you, Mandy. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of PageCast. We have an incredible lineup of author interviews, so head over to our Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thanks for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at PageCast. <laughs>